0: Come, let's stand if we can for the reading of God's Word, verse 13 down through verse number 17. The Bible says, and three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time under the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of, Reph- of Rephium. and David was then in hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men brake through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. The title of the sermon this evening is this. Mighty men of valor. Mighty men of valor. We need some men who will rise up and be mighty men of valor. What does that mean? What does that look like? Let's pray together this evening. Lord, God, me as I preach tonight, and Lord, may my lips be Your lips. Hide me, Lord, behind uh, the cross of salvation. Lord, I don't want to be seen or known or recognized or any portion of this sermon to be about me, but Lord, about You. You are the captain of the guard of the army, and Lord, we're just simply troops marching lockstep in order, following You as we fight the devil and fight our flesh and. Fight sin. And Lord, we look forward to the day where we lay down our spiritual weapons and we enjoy rest in heaven. Until that day, may we be mighty men and mighty women who serve you with a full heart. And may we be all in on this thing. And God, use the scripture passages tonight to challenge us and help us to see where we can improve and be better. And Lord, uh, where we can uh, grow. And Lord, where we can help. Uh, to advance the cause of the gospel. Guide me now as I preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, every preacher has their favorite topics, and I guess I'm no different than every other preacher. If I had to say my favorite topic to preach would be the story of salvation. I love to talk about the doctrine of salvation, and there's nothing better than preaching the gospel, articulating it clearly, and then seeing people come uh, to Christ. I have had the privilege of leading people through prayer there in the pew and then sitting with them either after church or in their home and indeed knowing that they understood and believed and got saved and uh, whether it's at someone's door here in the pulpit, preaching the gospel would be my favorite topic. After that, I would say my favorite topic to teach on would be the, the Christian home. I love to teach in preach on the Christian home, and uh, I think that's a, a, a subject that's warranted and needed uh, given the, uh, the culture and the dysfunction in many homes today. But right up there with the Christian home is the topic of leadership. I have probably read more material on, uh, more literature on leadership than any other topic. If I come across an article on leadership I will usually stop what I'm doing and give my full attention to reading that. I've read numerous books on the topic and watched many seminars and programs, and uh, I enjoy the topic greatly. Why? Well, leadership is standing and leading with the authority of God in the place of God. Let me say that again. Leadership is standing and leading with the authority of God in the place of God. One day leaders will give an account for how well they did their duty. This is why I value the topic so much. If I'm going to stand in the place of God with the authority of God and lead others, and then I'm going to give an account to my maker for how well I did that one day, boy, I sure do want to get this thing right. Now, Strong men are drawn to strong leaders. Weak leaders do not attract strong men. I strive to be a leader at home who is worthy of being followed. I hope you do as well. I strive to be a spiritual leader here at church who is worthy of being followed. What happens when you take your role serious as a godly leader? What happens when you do that over a lifetime? Well, you get the life of David. David was a very strong leader. A very good leader. And he did it not for a few days or months or even years. He did it for decades. And as a result... um, we have a man who can stand at the end of his life and tell us what it looks like to be a strong leader. David was a mighty man of valor, and as a result, he drew to himself mighty men of valor. Now, God would use David to do many things. He was a prophet. In fact, Peter, uh, in the book of Acts, would uh, acknowledge David as a prophet. Uh, David was a psalmist. He wrote a good chunk of the book of Psalms and so he was a poet and David was a skillful musician he could play a harp but David was also a man of war and a mighty mighty man of war and 2nd Samuel chapter 22 is the chapter we looked at last week we saw one of David's such piece of Hebrew poetry now the beginning of 2 Samuel 23 tells us that this would be the last piece of inspired writing that David would pen, and what would the topic be? David is going to write one last time, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, one last time before he goes on home to glory, and what would the topic be? The topic would be leadership. Look at chapter 23 and look at verse 1. Now, these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who is raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, Here it is, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of all Israel spake to me. Look here. He that ruleth over men. Now, Everything that's about to proceed from here down through the end of verse eight is what God is telling David about leadership. He that ruleth over men, everything to follow, has to do with God's instruction to David on how to be a leader. A leader. Um Solomon, who is David's son and would be the heir to the throne, would write his last words at the end of his life, and you know what he would say? Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. He would talk about how that he had wasted his life. Now, in contrast, David would write his last words. And he would write about how fruitful his kingdom had been and how God had blessed him with remarkable followers and a fruitful kingdom. I believe that godly leaders attract godly followers and carnal leaders attract carnal followers. I believe that strong, courageous men attract... Strong and courageous men. This is why David had men willing to die for him, while Saul had to bribe men into his military to take roles of leadership by giving them houses and giving them money. David did not have to bribe. There were men who were willing to put their life on the line to even get him a glass of water. Whereas Saul paid bribes. What kind of leader are you? Are you a man or woman of integrity? Are you a man or woman who deeply and truly fears your God? Are you a man or woman of humility? I desire to be a husband, a father, and pastor who is a mighty man of courage, morality, and valor. I have much growing to do. But that is my goal. Is it yours? I don't want to just be a great leader for a handful of years. I want to be a great leader for a lifetime. I want to get to the end of my life, my senior years, if God so allows me to make it that far. And I want to enjoy the fruit of my labor as a godly leader in my most senior years. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? If we could invite King David, at the end of his life, to come. To come here this evening and tell us the formula and the fruit of a lifetime of godly leadership We know exactly what he would say because it's found right here in 2 Samuel chapter 23. So, this evening, we're going to look at three main truths as we consider this thought of mighty men of valor. Number one, number one, notice the requirements of a godly leader. The requirements of a godly leader. Let me give you four I see in just these few short verses here at the beginning of the chapter. Letter A. He possesses God's anointing. He possesses God's anointing. Look at verse number 1 with me. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who is raised up on high. Look here. The anointed, the anointed of the God of Jacob. And the sweet psalmist of Israel said. Now we'll look at verse 2 here shortly. You may remember that Samuel anointed David with oil when he was just a shepherd boy, you remember the story. Um, David would be anointed again when he would become king of Hebron, and then be anointed yet again when he was made king over the entire nation. God empowers those whom He calls, and He anointed David with His Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer put it this way. I love this quote. He said, Never follow any leader... Until you see the oil on his forehead. Never follow any leader until you see the oil on his forehead. This explains why so many gifted men came to David and joined his band. It takes far more than talent and training to be an effective leader and to be able to recruit and train other leaders. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus reminds us that without Me, ye can do nothing. Nothing. And if you try to lead with all of the talent and all the training, and you don't have uh, the Spirit of God working in you and through you, it is all vanity. It's great to be educated by men. But it's even more important to be trained by the Lord. I'll stop and think about this. Even the Lord Jesus Christ himself spent 30 years preparing for three years of earthly ministry. 30 years preparing for three years of public ministry. Oswald Chambers wrote, he said, The modern stamp is three hours of preparation for 30 years of service. Three hours of preparation. Well, I read a book one time. Um, You know, uh, I've watched uh, some people, so I think I know what I'm doing. Listen, if we're going to be a godly leader, then we need God's anointing. You say, Pastor Lejeune, all right, how do I get God's anointing? By spending time in the presence of God. By having a heart for God. We've looked at David. Our theme all year has been a heart for God. David had a deep, deep, deep love for God. And as a result, God said, that young man loves me more than most. And I'm going to choose him to do something great. Letter B, he promotes righteous living. He promotes righteous living. Look at verse 3. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men, here's the requirement, look here, must be just. Must be just. God, the rock of Israel, told David, he said, if you're going to lead men, you're going to rule over men, you must be just. David tells us that God told him directly that he who rules over men must be just. Now, the word just here means righteous, righteous. That means that he, the leader, has a tender and a submissive heart toward the Lord A tender and submissive heart toward the Lord. That means he values right standing with God and works hard to lead those who are under his leadership to do just that. And iniquity, or rather iniquity, is not celebrated or made light of by a, a just man, a just leader. Instead, iniquity is discouraged and dismissed. It's discouraged and disregarded. It's discouraged and discarded. And a godly leader does not have fun promoting iniquity or laughing at iniquity. He's got no time for that. We're going to promote just. We're going to promote righteous. We're going to make it the culture. We're going to do what's right. We don't have any time for anything that's sinful because if you're going to rule and you're going to be a man of God, then you must be just. When Abishai encouraged David to kill Saul there in the camp, David dismissed the idea. Why? Because he that ruleth over men must be just. When the Amalekite came in 2 Samuel 1 and claimed to have killed Saul, hoping that he would somehow be promoted in David's new kingdom, David fell to his knees in great sorrow and put on sackcloth and ashes and then said to the man, Your own mouth condemns you. And he had the man killed for raising his hand against God's anointed. Why? Because... He that ruleth over men must be just. When Joab killed Abner, David strongly rebuked him. Uh, When when Abishai wanted to take off uh, Shimei's head on two different occasions, David rebuked him both times. While David certainly was far from perfect, and the whole Bathsheba chapters in the Bible are there, David sought to promote righteousness the majority of his life uh, by the way he lived. What are the requirements for a godly leader? You want to lead your home, men? You want to leave your home uh, to be that which pleases the Lord? Well, he, uh, a man who is a godly leader, he possesses God's anointing. He promotes righteous living. Look at letter C. Notice, he prioritizes the fear of God. He prioritizes the fear of God. Look at uh, verse number 3. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. Ruling in the fear of God. Here's really a vital part of the message. A godly leader does not view himself as the final authority because a godly leader knows he is not the final authority. He fears his ultimate authority. He fears the God of heaven. My children are not slaves that I boss around and make do what I want. My children belong to the Lord. And one day I'm going to give an account to God for how I raise them on His behalf. Why? Because I stand in the place of God and I wield God's authority when it comes to the development of my children. Boy, I better do that carefully. One day as a pastor... I am going to stand and I'm going to give an account to God for the way I shepherded this flock in His place. He's the shepherd. I'm the under-shepherd. It's not my place to use church members to build my kingdom and then discard them when I can't squeeze anything else out of them. It's not my place. It's my place to love the flock of God as though Jesus Christ Himself was here. How about you? What areas do you lead? At work? At home? Where has God given you authority? Maybe even within this ministry. Do you fear the ultimate authority that you'll answer to one day? Every decision you make as a leader should be made with the thought, if God was standing here in the flesh looking over my shoulder... Would he approve what I'm doing? Do you fear the God of heaven? Now listen closely. Listen very closely. When a man leads without righteousness in the fear of God, he becomes a dictator. And he abuses God's people. He drives them like cattle instead of leading them like sheep. He drives them like cattle instead of leading them like sheep. Far too many Christian men act like Old Testament kings instead of New Testament shepherds. We don't need some Old Testament king to stand up and and demand everybody serve them. We need a New Testament servant, New Testament uh, uh, shepherd who gets in the ditch and smells like the sheep that he's been called to lead. I wrote this down about David. David was a ruler who served and a servant who ruled. David was a ruler who served and a servant who ruled. And as he ruled, he had the welfare of his people at heart. He cared more about their promotion than his name recognition. What are the requirements of a godly leader? Well, he possesses God's anointing. You can see the oil of God's anointing on his forehead. He promotes righteous living. There's no room to laugh at, make fun of, and enjoy sin. Oh no, just living, righteous living, is the culture under a righteous leader. He prioritizes the fear of God. He knows that God is the ultimate authority, and one day he'll give an account To God for how he stood in his place and led with his authority. Letter D, notice he personifies humility. He personifies humility. There is no perfect leader, not one. Much of my life I've not been a leader, I've been the follower. I've served under some really good leaders. I've served under some very poor leaders. I've watched good leaders have bad moments. I've never seen a leader who's perfect. Leaders are not perfect. I would just encourage you this evening to be very careful about where you have your eyes placed. You follow men as they follow Christ. But you're not following the man, you're following Christ. And if the man falls by the wayside, you just keep trucking right along following Christ. You pray for that man to be restored. But don't you follow a man. By the way, cults are built on a man. But his church is built on the rock the Lord Jesus Christ. If you come to White Oak Baptist Church because you think Pastor Lejeune has the charisma that you enjoy or a style of preaching that you enjoy, you need to make sure you're not here for those reasons. You come here to be fed by the Word of God and you follow Christ. You follow the pastor while the pastor's following Christ. But don't you put an expectation on any man that he's perfect. Because I can tell you right now, and if you want details, I'll be happy to sit and give them to you. I'm far from perfect. Far from perfect. I grew up in an era of an independent Baptist world where we pretended as though the preacher could make no mistakes. Preachers make mistakes, this one included. You know, David knew that he was not a perfect leader and he knew that his life was riddled with a handful of very poor choices. He also knew that God had chosen to unmeritoriously pour out blessings all over his life. Look at verse four of Second Samuel twenty-three. Look here, and he, speaking of a leader who leads with a just heart and the fear of God, and he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springeth out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Now we're going to dissect verse four a little bit more under point two. Look at verse 5. Look at David's declaration. Although my house be not so with God. You know what David said? I have not achieved the level that even I'm laying out. I've not always been just. And I've not always feared God. And I've not always been that sunshine Israel needed. I've made my mistakes. My house be not so with God. You know what that is? It's a very honest assessment of himself. He goes on to say, Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, for this is all my salvation and my desire, although he make it not to grow. David said, Listen, this is the standard of how a leader should behave. And David says, I haven't always behaved that way, I've made mistakes. How do you shore up yourself as a leader? Be honest with people that follow you. Let them know you're not perfect. Be transparent when you make a mistake. Be able to go sit on the bed of your child and say, I blew it. I was wrong. I didn't handle that right. Men, be willing to look your wife in the eye and say, I should have listened to you on that one. You were right. Or... I've not been very loving your direction, or I've not been very kind to you over the last X amount of time. Here's a couple words every good leader should be good at saying. Ready? I'm sorry. Follow it up by another phrase. Here it is. I was wrong. Alright, repeat after me. Ready? I'm sorry I was wrong. Some of you can't say it, can you? You can't, your mouth just can't form. Nope, does not, can't do it, all right? And we don't need a and, if, or but statement behind that, right? I was wrong, but you, no, no, I'm sorry, I was wrong. That's humility. You want to be a godly leader, you've got to have some humility about you. Because the best of men are men at best, aren't they? Men are flawed. You know what people like? People like when you're honest with them about it. I've gotten plenty of feedback in my pastorate here. and People say, Pastor Lejeune, I love that you're so transparent about your struggles from the pulpit. And my wife isn't always so comfortable with with my transparency from the pulpit. But I want you to know that I'm a human being too. And I'm flawed. You say, Pastor Lejeune, are you declaring yourself to be humble? Oh, far from it. I know I have pride in my heart. Are you self-aware enough to know where you struggle? Are you self-aware enough to know where pride rears its ugly head and takes the day in your heart? David said, here's the standard. I've not always met the standard, but God's been good to me anyway. Do you possess God's anointing? Or are you just going through life trying to figure it out as you go? Do you possess God's anointing? Does God lead you as you lead those under your care? Or are you just going off life experiences in the school of hard knocks? Be very careful about leaning on earthly wisdom when God offers you heavenly wisdom to move forward. And Scripture to tell you how to do it. Do you promote righteous living? Now, I want to speak directly to you here this evening. What kind of music do you listen to? There's a whole music industry out there that is tearing at the fabric of a godly man. Pulling us down. You say, Pastor, but you know, I grew up listening to that stuff and it's just in me. You can be conformed to the world or you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Amen. You have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. Listen, I get you're walking through Walmart and some song comes on that reminds you of your, you know, when you're a teen in a rock band. Okay, I get it. It's a battle. But fight that battle. Fight that battle. Seek to win that battle. Righteous living means that we don't tolerate sin in our homes. We don't tolerate sin under our watch care. That we take the Word of God and we say sin brings death. And I don't want death in my home. I don't want death under uh, any area where God's put me uh, uh, in, in some uh, place of authority. And I'm going to declare war against sin. And I'm going to stand on righteousness. And if the people under me think that I'm some sort of, you know, uh, holy roller or holy Joe, that that that's all fine and good. I don't need the approval of man. I want the approval of my God in heaven. That's what we need today. We need righteous living. We need men who prioritize fearing God instead of being concerned about what man thinks, what others think. There's a movement in our country, it's a movement of populism, it's a populist movement. We sort of, we put our, we pick on politicians for doing it, but we put a wet finger in the air and we see which way the wind's blowing and we allow our opinions to form based on what other people are telling us and what other people believe. And I don't care what the politicians say or pop culture says. I care about what the word of God says and I care about what pleases my savior in heaven. And if that goes in a different direction than everybody else, then so be it. Because one day I'm going to give an account to God in heaven, not some politician or pop culture uh, icon. We need men who will grow some hair on their legs and stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and I'm going to live like that. Number one, the requirements of a godly leader. Number two, let's look at the results of a godly leader. I'm not angry this evening, I'm just passionate. I said this morning that I feel that our culture has emasculated the average man. And that's not just a feeling or an opinion. I mentioned this morning that testosterone levels in men today are far lower than they were in the 1980s. In fact, a 40-year-old in 1980 had 40% more testosterone than 40-year-olds today have. That's, That's our reality. It's our reality. Women act like men and men act like women. Women dress like men and men dress like women. And I'm not here to pick on any group of people. I'm not here to put people down. But I'm saying that God made men to be men and He made women to be women and we need to get back to men acting like men and women acting like women. One's not better than the other, by the way. They're both equal to each other. It's okay to embrace your gender and it's okay to embrace the role that goes along with that gender. That doesn't make you sexist. It makes you a believer in that which is normal. Amen? I'll tell you what isn't normal. What isn't normal is believing that a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man. That's not normal. I don't care what the culture tells you, that is not normal. And part of being a man is that you're principled and that you're faithful and you're committed and you're humble. You walk with God. Your life is marked by righteousness, not worldliness. What happens when you commit to a life like this? Well, I said in the introduction that when I get to the end of my life, and I enjoy all of the benefits of having been a courageous, godly leader, that I hope I can enjoy that. Now here, in Second Samuel 23, David is at the very end of his life. And in his last piece of inspired scripture, he tells us not only the requirements, but he offers us the results that he got to enjoy uh, because he was a mighty man of valor as a godly leader. Now watch this. Godly leadership cultivates a culture of light. A culture of light. Look with me at verse number four. And he shall be as the light of... Of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds. David uses a beautiful metaphor of the storm clouds rolling away and a new day with the warmth of the sunshine coming down. And the tumultuous storms of King Saul's rulership had rolled out and now God was shining His warmth on His people. And God's blessings would be deeply enjoyed as a result. Here's what I know from reading First and 2 Samuel through the end of 2 Chronicles, that when the righteous rule, the people are safe and rejoice. But when the wicked rule, there's nothing but sadness and war and destruction and death. Don't let the culture distract you by somehow believing that sin uh, is, is good. No, Right might get called wrong and right might get called right. But I'm going to tell you what, when the righteous rule, the people are safe. Because there's a light that shined down upon them, and just as the sun has come out today and brought warmth, didn't it feel good outside today? What not a great day? This morning, I took my dog out and, uh, before church, and I sat on my back porch in just a simple hoodie and just soaked up the sunshine on January 1st, all right? Who said global warming is all that bad, amen? All right, I, that was a joke, okay? Okay. Um, And a good leader, a good leader will shine the warmth of righteousness on those who follow them. And people will thrive as a result. David's leadership would be a harvest of blessing for the entire nation of Israel because of the Lord. Now listen up. Some of you in here have dysfunction. Great dysfunction in your home. And you blame your kids, and you blame your wife, and you blame your mom-in-law, and you blame your dog, you blame whoever you want. If your culture in your home is toxic, then my friend, as the leader, it's your fault. It's your fault. You are the leader. You own the responsibility. Because if you're walking with the Lord and He's in control and dictating your spirit and you fear God and you are righteous in the way you live and you have His anointing on your life, then you will create a culture of light that will bring warmth and you will have growth that takes place. But not only a culture of light. Notice, letter B, a culture of life. A culture of life. Look back at verse 4. And He shall be as the light of the morning Where the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, look here, as the tender grass springeth out of the earth by clear shining after rain. God had prepared the nation of Israel for abundant growth. He sent the tumultuous rains through the troubled kingship of Saul. David became king and the storm clouds rolled out and the warm sunshine of David's leadership rolled in and the country went from great distress to great success. It's the responsibility of the leader not to be worried with building his own name or building his own kingdom. It's the responsibility of the leader to build up those around him. Watch this now. A leader is hyper-focused on those who he has been put in charge of. He's hyper-focused on their spiritual well-being. He's hyper-focused on their growth. He's hyper-focused on their struggles. He's hyper-focused on helping them get past those struggles. As a dad, I could sit down And I can tell you exactly where Matthew has got strengths and weaknesses and where April has strengths and weaknesses. I can tell you where my wife has strengths and weaknesses and I can tell you where I have strengths and weaknesses. Because it is my duty and my role to know where those weaknesses are and to coach and help and guide and lead and help them overcome and get to a place of great growth. As a pastor, it is my duty to know my flock. It is my duty to know each one who's a member here. It is my duty to know their strengths and their weaknesses." It is my duty to know where they need to grow. It is my duty to love them and pray for them and help them and guide them and direct them and correct them and rebuke them and admonish them and come along their side and put my arm around them when they're hurting and love them and help them through life's trials and help them through life's struggles and bring them to a place of great growth. And so as the storms of life roll through, the warmth of God's love comes shining through the leader. And as a result, you have the rain that pours and the sun that shines and growth that comes up as a result. What kind of leader are you, husband? Do you know where your wife's struggles are? Do you rebuke and, and 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 berate and put down and yell and holler and let them have it, or are you coaching and leading and influencing and guiding and loving them as you love your own flesh, nourishing them as you nourish your own flesh? By the way, before you go making an inventory of your wife's shortcomings, maybe make an inventory of your own. Amen? Maybe attack yours and then help your wife attack hers. Parents, so you know where your kids struggle? What area has God given you as a leader? Are you working with those things? Are you developing those things? Everywhere you go, there ought to be growth as a result of you putting your hand on it. And you touching it. There ought to be improvement. People say, "Well, everywhere I go, it's disarray, 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 disarray. Everyone's fault." Dis... No, no, no. If you're the leader, everywhere you go, it ought to be peace and joy and love and long suffering and gentleness and growth, and growth. A culture of life. A culture of life. The reality is that rain is a part of life. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Every now and then my phone rings and I'll pick up my phone and there's some sort of tragedy that is struck. In the last six and a half years I have run into some homes and watched bodies get taken out of houses. I have run to the aid of people who are on the verge of overdose and death. I've run to the aid of people who were in great distress and fear and sadness. I've run to hospital beds and sat there and prayed and wept with loved ones. Rain is a part of life. And sometimes that rain is unavoidable. But you should not be the source of the rain. You should be the source of Of the warmth of the sunshine after the rain. God can use you, along with the storms of life, to bring great growth. You see, before you can be light and bring life, you've got to deal with your own demons. And some of you in here, you are a wreck on the inside. Because you've got sin that you haven't properly dealt with. And I would refer you back to the point about the requirement of being a just man. A just man. Letter C, notice, a culture of loyalty. A culture of loyalty. The remainder of chapter 23 is devoted to a record of David's mighty men of valor. These were the men whom David led as they led and defended the country. In a few minutes, we're going to see a highlight reel of of these acts of valor. But uh, where did David find these men? Take your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Where did these men who were ultra-loyal to David come from? You may remember way back when David was on the run from King Saul that he found himself hiding out in the cave Adullam. And it was here that David gathered together men who were broken, in debt, and rejected. And they were kicked out by society. They were kicked to the curb uh, by the Culture. They were kicked out by King Saul. Maybe they were kicked out because of debt. And it was David's great leadership that built these broken men into mighty men of valor. He took men who had been discarded. He loved them. He led them. He got them back in a place of, of order with their life. And they became ultra, ultra loyal to him. Look at First Samuel 22. Look at verse 1. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dolem. And when his brethren and his father's house heard it, they went down hither or thither to him. And every one that was in distress, and every one that was in debt, and every one that was uh, discontented, gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. Here's what I want to say to you this evening. You want to be a great leader, then you need to learn to love people. And I mean deeply love people when they're broken and when they're hurting. You take people when they're broken and they're hurting, and you love them, and you stay at it, and you, 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 you stand by their side when they're in the lowest time of their life, and you're there to help them and encourage them, and not just pat them on the back and foo-foo them. No, you're there to help guide them out of that dark place and help them get their feet up on a place where they can move forward with life again I'm going to tell you right now, you do that, you're going to develop some people who are very loyal to you. Very loyal to you. Now, let me be clear. The motive is not to bring people to a place where they're loyal to you. It's a byproduct of loving God and leading them to do what's right. Now, is everyone you love on going to follow you out of the pit? Nope. I could stand here for hours and tell you stories of people that I've loved on and they love the pit more than they, they love to do right. And they're still sitting in a pit somewhere. There's only so much you can do. Not everyone's going to follow you. Will all of them stay loyal to you even after you've led them out of the pit? Nope. Sometimes people stab you in the back. Sometimes people turn on you. Someone said if you rescue a dog, be loyal to, you, to your life. Human's not so much. Human's not so much. You can rescue a human, but boy, that, that baggage sometimes turns around and comes back. And, and, I, and, and here's how I sort of live my life as a pastor. If I'm going to help people out of mud pits, sometimes I'm going to get some mud on my face. And it hurts. You know what? That comes with the territory of what you do when you love people. Well, some of them forsake you. But will many of them love you back? Yeah. Yeah, they will. Many of them love you back. There's a handful of you around the room this evening. God put you on my doorstep. When you're in a pretty low place. You and I spend hours together. Either in my office or your kitchen table. In your living room or a coffee shop or a diner somewhere, and I rebuke you pretty hard. I answered your questions, I helped you. Some of you in here I've sat by your hospital beds and I've prayed with you. You know why I did that? I didn't do that so I could have a loyal coalition of church members. I did that because God wanted to shine his love through me onto your life. You know what happens when you do that? Like David, you have people who are loyal. They're loyal to you, and they'll follow you to the death. You love people deep enough, enough, thorough enough, and long enough, you will experience what it means to have people who are loyal to you and willing to look past your shortcomings and see the greater good. Now listen to me, I'm not going to speak uh, to anyone in particular, but I believe that this is the problem that we face today in our leadership failure uh, here in, in, our, in our culture. Many, many people want to shortchange this process. They demand a culture of loyalty from their followers, but they're not willing to get down in the trenches and love on their sheep. They demand a culture of life but they're not willing to plant the seeds of servitude and love people when they are at their lowest. They demand a culture of light, but they themselves are not willing to be just and to fear the Lord. You cannot have a culture of light if you're not going to be righteous and fear the Lord. You cannot have a culture of life if you're not willing to be the sunshine that shines on their life and brings normalcy and growth in their life. You cannot have a culture of loyalty if you're not willing to get down in the trenches and love on the people God's called you to lead. The requirements. The results. Boy, one day I want to get to the end of my life. And I want to look back over decades of being a godly leader. And I want to enjoy light and life and loyalty. Number three, notice the reinforcements of a godly leader. The Reinforcements of a godly leader. David's name is mentioned in the Bible more than a thousand times. Many of the men in this passage are only mentioned once or twice. Especially if you look at the end of the chapter, you have a long list of names. Many of those names are only mentioned in the Bible once or twice. But let me be clear that David would not have become the legend in Scripture had it not been for the mighty men that placed him on their shoulders and helped to carry him there. This is, I've preached about leaders. The entire sermon up to right here. Now I'm going to preach to followers. Alright? I call these men in chapter number 23, I call them spark plugs. Spark plugs. Why? Well, we're going to read why here in just a minute. These guys did some incredible things. Every leader needs spark plug followers. The first two or three years I was the pastor here, I was leaning heavy on the the guys that were uh, in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s to be my spark plugs and didn't have a lot of young men in the church. Come along and bring youth and energy. And I gotta tell you, the men in their forties, fifties, and sixties, my first couple of years here, boy, they gave it every, I, I pushed them and they gave it everything they could. And many of them still are giving it everything they can. But praise God, over the last three years or so, God has given us some young men in this church who've stepped up and brought a youth and a vibrancy and an energy. And they're being those spark plugs that will help take our church and grow it to a whole other level so that we can have greater influence to reach more people in the the community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Spark plugs. Spark plug followers get everyone else fired up about following the game plan and moving things forward. You can have a great leader, but if you don't have spark plug followers, uh, that leader's not going to go very far. Alright, and uh, listen, if you're here tonight, you think, well, I don't have a title and I don't have a role. You have an important role in this church and it's a step up and be a spark plug because a mediocre plan that's followed with enthusiasm is greater than a great plan that's not followed at all. We Sometimes you may come next week and think, well, pastor, I don't know that that plan's all that great you laid out for the church. And you may feel that way, but enthusiastically get behind it and you see we're going to go some places. We need some spark plugs. David had his spark plugs. Boy did he ever. These are men and women who are content to work in the background. They don't need pastor to get up and foo-foo them from behind the pulpit. Oh, look at brother such and such. Isn't he great? Look at Do you know what sister such and such does for this church? Isn't she wonderful? Hey, I don't need that stuff. In fact, they don't even want it. They don't like it because they're not doing it for recognition. They're doing it to help the leader and please their savior in heaven. Throughout the years, there have been some great leaders within the Independent Baptist movement. Maybe you've heard the name Lee Robertson. Lee Robertson pastored the Highland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. At one time, he was the pastor of the world's largest Sunday school. Lee Robertson has written many books and uh, his name has been hailed and uh, highly acclaimed, but few know the name J.R. Faulkner. J.R. Faulkner was really the engine that made Lee Robertson a big deal. J.R. Faulkner was content to live in the background and let Lee Robertson be the leader. J.R. Faulkner was his spark plug. Maybe you've heard the name Jack Hiles. At its peak, First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana, ran over 20,000 every Sunday morning in Sunday school. But few know the names Roy Moffitt or Jerry Colston. These men were spark plugs and did much of the heavy lifting. Many people know the name Paul Chapel, Pastor of the Lancaster Baptist Church in Lancaster, California. One of the largest independent Baptist churches in the world, but few know the names Jerry Furso Trust me, there's a lot of other spark plugs that make that ministry go. Maybe you've heard the name J. Frank Norris. Now watch this. This is incredible. From 1935 to 1951, he pastored the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, Texas and the Temple Baptist Church of Detroit, Michigan. He pastored two churches in the 1950s, one in Texas, the other one in Michigan. (laughs) They both ran over 1,000 in church. I don't know how he did it. I got my hands full with 200 people here living right next door to the property. Now, as as the story goes, he would take a train. He didn't fly. He took a train back and forth. And he'd spend two weeks to a month pastoring one church, get on a train and, 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 and travel from either Michigan to Texas or Texas to Michigan, and then he'd pastor the other church for two weeks or a month. And back and forth he'd go. How was he able to do that? Well, he had a spark plug by the name of G.B. Vick. And when he was in one church, G.B. Vick was in the other church, and they would get on a train, and they'd meet each other in St. Louis, and they'd get off in St. Louis and they'd talk about what was going on in the two ministries and they'd get back on their trains and head the other direction and they would, uh, GB Vic helped him. But you know what? GB Vic didn't get the recognition J. Frank Norris got. GB Vic was a spark plug. Before I move on, I want to reiterate how important the role of a leader is. The leader sets the culture. The leader sets the height of expectation based on the way he lives and his own discipline. But there is something to be said about godly followers. Leaders should focus on being the best leader they can be. Likewise, followers should focus on being the best follower that he or she can be. The rest of this chapter is devoted to to, to a pecking order of honorable men from most honorable on down. All of these men are honorable and all of these men are mighty men of valor, but there's a pecking order from most honorable on down. And we find that there is a set of three and then another set of three and then a set of two and then the rest of the men. Now, some have labeled this David's 30 mighty men of valor. Others see it as David's 37 mighty men of valor. And between this passage and one other, there's some uh, difference in names and people who got swapped in and out depending on the chronology of when it was written, but all the same, just like Jesus had more than 12 disciples, but the number 12 is ascribed, here we see David's 30 mighty men of valor. So let's take a few minutes and let's look at them from most elite on down, all right? We'll look at these in the present tense because I want you men here to step up and be mighty men of valor. Okay, letter A notice, men who are courageous, men who are courageous. So this is David's first three. And if I were to take today um, the most elite of the elite of the military and I were to read, offer you their accolades and some of the things that they've accomplished, you'd say, that's not humanly possible. But they are humanly possible. They're just elite. And what we're about to read seems like it's impossible. But these were elite men who fought for David and did so honorably. Let's look at uh, three men here. First, notice Adino killed 800 men all by himself. Look at uh, chapter 23, look at verse 8. These be the mighty men of David, the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Adino the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. Wow. What a feat! Now, I've read some commentaries that said, well, he led an army that's... No, the Bible says he singularly slew, all right? And uh, you got to be careful with some of these commentaries. He slew 800 at one time. And that's why he's top of the list, okay? And this list travels on down. But Adino, top of David's mighty men of valor, he killed 800 all by himself. Next on the list is Eleazar... Eleazar, and he fought so hard in battle that his hand clave unto his sword and he could not peel his fingers off of the sword. Look at verse 9. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo. I love that. Amen? Dodo. He was a real Dodo. No. Um, Eleazar the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David. Whom, uh, When they defied the Philistines that, uh, that were there gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away, he arose and smote the Philistine until his hand was weary. Did he lay down his sword and say, I'm tired? No. His hand clave unto the sword, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And the people returned after him, only to spoil. Now watch this, watch this, when his hand got weary he did not put down the sword he continued to fight, his hand claved the sword and at that time God gave him a great victory. Sometimes uh, we fight for the Lord and we battle for the Lord and then we get tired and we want to quit. Did he quit? No, he didn't quit, he said no. Now is the time God's going to give me a great victory. He continued to hold on to that sword, his hand claved under the sword and then God uh, God uh, uh, wrought a great victory. Some of you here tonight, God wants to do great things with you, but you you give up way too soon, and you lay your sword down, and you walk away because you're tired and you're weary, and God says, wait a minute, the war's just getting started. Notice the third mighty man of valor here, Shama. Shama stood and defended a field of beans. All right? There's a phrase that's grown common. It's, I won't die on that hill. I won't die on that hill. And listen, I think there's some hills you probably shouldn't fight battles on. But that wasn't Shama's attitude. Shama said, There's a field of lentils there, and the Philistines are trying to take it. Uh uh-uh, uh. That's my field of lentils. You go find another field of lentils. Look at verse number 11. Look at verse 11. And after him was Shama, the son of Aji, the and the Philistines were gathered together into a troop. There was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. So notice, the Philistine army is coming in at harvest, and they're trying to take over this field, and everybody gets up and they run away. Look at verse 12. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. He stood in the middle of the field and he said, You're not taking this field. Everyone else fled, and he fought the entire garrison of the Philistines by himself, and he killed them all. These are men who are courageous. Men who do not uh, tuck their tail and run. Men who are not looking to run from conflict, but men who know when it's time to stand and fight, and they stand up and they fight against sin. Now, we have a culture that is pushing men around. I look more broadly at America. America. In the American church. And I look at the average male that goes to the average evangelical American church. And I'll tell you what I see I see men where Satan has removed any sort of a semblance of a spiritual spine, they're not godly men the average man who goes to church goes to appease their wife or to appease their conscience or because it's still in their heart and mind culturally accepted. But they're not going to church because of any spiritual backbone or morals or principles. What makes you a mighty man of valor is that you know what's right And deep down in your crawl, you do what's right because it's right to do right. You do what's right because you understand that... Who was the one that rescued you from the deepest pit? It wasn't a man. It wasn't Pastor Lejeune or some other pastor. It was the Lord Jesus Christ when He hung on a cross and He died for your sins and He saved your soul and you're willing to get up and get dressed and go to church and love God and do right and live for Him. Because He is worthy. And He's not just worthy today or next month or next year. He's worthy for your entire life and the culture can go whatever direction they want. Jesus died for your sins on the cross, and you're going to stand, and you're going to do what's right, and you'll you'll defend any field of beings. You'll stand and fight against all of the millions of hell because you're courageous, and you're going to stand, and you're going to fight. And you know what? Your family may go the other direction. Your friends may go the other direction. But you're going to do what's right because you're loyal to the Christ in heaven who saved your soul. And we need men who will stand up for what's right and quit trying to appease someone and please their Savior in heaven. These three men said, look, I don't care what everyone else is doing. I know what's right and I'm going to fight the enemy and I'm going to win the battle. Letter A, men who are courageous. Letter B, men who are conscientious. Men who are conscientious. And we make our way back to the passage where we began this evening. Look at verse number 13. And three of the thirty chief went down. Now, before we continue, these three men are not named, right? These three men are anonymous in Scripture. And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time under the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim, And David was there in hold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So... The Philistines are occupying Bethlehem. David is trapped in this cave, alright? Can't really move anywhere. He's stuck. David, who grew up in Bethlehem, he begins to think about the water of the well that he drank. Look at 15. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. You remember back to when he was a child and walked tending the sheep there in Bethlehem. the water that he drank from that well. And he, he grew sentimental. 16. So this is just a wish. This is not a command. And the three mighty men, this is incredible, break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out to the Lord. Okay, watch this. David's sitting there in the cave and he says, Oh, how I would love to have a drink of water from the same well I drank from when I was a little boy. Just sort of. Talking to himself just utters it out. And these three guys go, i got an idea. Let's go get him a cup of water. And so they get out their swords, and they march into Bethlehem, and they fight the Philistines, and they break through the Philistines risking their life, and they go, and they dip a cup of water out, and they come back, and they fight the Philistines back through, and they break through enemy lives, and they say to David, here you go. They risk their life to give the guy a cup of water, and then David does something crazy. He takes this cup of water, and he says, "Wow, guys, thanks, but I can't drink this." You know what I said to David? You're going to drink that <laughs> if I've got to tie you down and dump it down your throat. Okay, I put my life on the line for you to have that glass of water. David, he looked in the cup. He didn't see water. He saw the blood of the men that put their lives on the line. And he said, I respect too much what these men did for me to drink this water down. And culturally, there was an offering called a drink offering. And as that was poured out on the ground, it would symbolize the pouring out of one's life in the service of God. You know, Jesus was the ultimate drink offering when the water from his side poured on the ground and he poured out his life for me and you. And David said, I can't drink this. I'm going to pour this water out as a drink offering of my service to the Lord and my service to these men. And these men were conscientious, they could see the need of the leader, the desire of the leader. And they were willing to put their own lives on the line in order to fulfill His very desire. Now, I am not going to use this passage and twist it and turn it on its side in any way that's selfish. Here's what I'll say before we move on. I desire to be a leader where people would want to do this kind of thing on their own naturally. This is not something that people should be pressured into. This does not define um, uh, as much the craziness of the men as it defines the height of the level of leadership that David had climbed to. Men who were conscientious. Men who were willing to put the leader ahead of themselves. Letter C, men who conquer. Men who conquer. Now, two men are mentioned. The first is Abishai. We could spend... Hours just talking about Abishai, but I'm going to just say a couple quick remarks and we'll move on. Look at 18. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief among three. So he is the one that led those three to go and get the water, okay? And he lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them and had the name among three. Now, here's where we get the pecking order in the chapter. Look here. Was he not most honorable of three Therefore, he was their captain. Speaking of the anonymous three that went and got the water, how albeit he attained not unto the first three. See, of the first three, he didn't make it to that level. But right below those three, you have Abishai, and he was the leader of the three anonymous men that went and got the water uh, for David. Now, we see that it was Abishai who led these men. And in the end of chapter 22, Abishai saves David's life from a giant who is about to kill him. And while Abishai gets a lot of attention throughout the story, he did not attain the level of valor of the first three men. Now, let's move on and talk about, um, uh, uh, let me see, Beniah. Beniah, I don't know that's exactly how you pronounce his name, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. Amen. Beniah. He was a man of incredible war. Now, if you continue to read into first Kings, Beniah would become Solomon's war general would be equivalent to Joab, okay? But Solomon's Joab. And he would lead the Israeli army under Solomon's rule. Now, let's allow the Scripture to tell us about his acts of bravery and valor. This is incredible. Look at verse 20. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts, he slew, I don't know what these guys look like, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Well, that's impressive. He took on two men who had the strength of a lion at the same time and he killed them. But that's not it. Look here. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in time of snow. Now, more about that in a minute. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a staff. This is incredible plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. This is like fighting someone with a knife and you're empty handed and you take the knife from the man and you kill him with his own knife. Okay. That, that's quite the feat. Uh, These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and have the name among three mighty men. He was more honorable than the 30, but he, uh, but he attained not to the first three and David set him over his guard. Now Notice in verse 20, I read this in the commentary, I thought this was really good. Notice in verse 20 that Benaiah conquered the worst enemy, that's a lion, okay? Can you think of anything worse to be in a pit with than a lion? right, I can't think of any animal that I would rather face that's more fierce than a lion. So here he's in a pit with a lion. So he faces the worst enemy in the worst place, okay, in a pit. If I'm going to face a lion... I want to be like in an area where I have room to roam and run. All right, not that I'm going to get far, but it's sure is better than being down in a pit. All right, where the, the room is, the space is confined. So he faces the worst enemy in the worst place under the worst circumstances. There's snow all over the ground. I mean, he can't even get any traction. Okay, and guess what? He faces the worst enemy in the worst place under the worst circumstances. And he won. He came out victorious. Now listen up to me, men. I'm not trying to have a gotcha moment here. Listen up to me. I just want to show you Beniah's manhood up against where we're at today. We can't even push through snow in a driveway to get to church on a Sunday morning. It's below 30 degrees. I don't think I can go out soul winning today. You see how far we've come? You see where we're at as a culture? We, we're so quick to make excuses on why we can't do right. And while I'm at it this evening, it doesn't take five of you to stay home and take care of Junior who has a runny nose on a Sunday morning. Leave your wife home with a sick child and get your backside in the pew. Quit looking for an excuse to not do right. Benai is facing a lion in a pit in the snow. He slays the thing and walks out victorious. White Oak Baptist Church, if we're going to become. All that God wants us to become. And we're gonna go beyond 200 people on a Sunday morning and we're gonna grow to a larger number of larger influence and reach a larger community. Then we need some men who step up and say, I will be a mighty man of valor. I will conquer. I will conquer. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna look for reasons to be conquered. No, I'm gonna overcome. Letter D. Lastly, notice men who are committed. Men who are committed. And that word is the problem with men today. We're wishy-washy and we're not committed. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, mainly because I can't. I can't pronounce all those names, and probably you can't either, okay? But each of those men... In that chapter, they matter. And each of those men are put in the Holy Bible because they were part of David's elite forces. And they were committed that through David's reign, they were going to stand by his side and they were going to be godly men who did what was right. Were they perfect? Nope. Nope. We talked about that already. But they were committed to the cause. Now, a couple of observations about this list, and I'm going to wrap it up here. If you go through that list, you'll notice there's one name, notable name, that's missing. It's Joab. Joab is not found in that chapter. His brothers are. Abishai and Asahel are there, but he is not. You know why? Because after David died, he tried to make David's other son king instead of Solomon. And then he betrayed Solomon and he had to be killed. He was not an honorable man. He sought his own power and to build his own kingdom. But notice who is there. Look at the last verse of the chapter. Look there with me Uriah the Hittite, 30 and 7 in all. Uriah the Hittite. Think about that. David took and wrote a message, stuck it in Uriah's hand and put the kingly seal on it, knowing that Uriah was honorable enough to carry that to the front lines and give it to Joab and not look at it or read it. David put Uriah on the front lines and then had him killed. Even he, was a mighty man of valor. He was loyal to his cause and his country even when his king was not loyal to him. Now I want to just say this and I'll be done. One day when you stand before God, God is not going to ask you what kind of job Pastor Lejeune or Pastor Pezlak or Pastor Brown did pastoring you. He's going to ask you one question. How did you live your life for me? You're a member of White Oak Baptist Church. You were husband to, father of. How did you fulfill that duty? You're not going to answer for me, and I'm not going to answer for you. got to quit making excuses as to why we don't do right. We need men who stand up and say, I'll be a mighty man of valor. I'm going to serve God and I'm going to be faithful, not for a few months or years, for a lifetime. There have always been cowards in every culture. May God give us men who are courageous. There have always been lazy men in every culture. May God give us men who are loyal to their God, loyal to their church and its pastor. We need men who will love God. Within their homes, create a culture of life, light, and loyalty. To the men here this evening, I want to ask you this question. Will you be that man? Will you be that man? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. God, one day, when the record of heaven is revealed, may it be shown that many of the men in the room here today did not follow their sinful base instincts, but instead were mighty men of valor who loved their Lord and did what was right. Men of morals and principle and character and conviction. Men who knew how to love. Men who knew how to fight. Men who had a backbone and knew how to stand for what was right. Give us a church full of such men. Lord, we have a world that needs leadership. May we provide the leadership the world needs. Will you use this church mightily in the years to come? Lord, would you stir our hearts during this time of invitation? In Jesus' name we pray.